0: giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. Recently, federal agencies released part one of the highly anticipated regulation regarding the ban on surprise billing included in the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, also known as the CAA, the 2,000-plus-page CAA, Encompassed many provisions, including a ban on surprise billing, referred to as the No Surprises Act. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, Marcy Buckner is here to discuss what is included in this first round of regulatory language regarding the No Surprises Act. Can you summarize what aspects of Title I of the No Surprises Act that this interim final rule deals with?
1: Sure. And like Dan said, this is. Part one. So, we really want to emphasize that this is just the first piece in a very big puzzle before we can get a full picture of exactly what the No Surprises Act will be in its totality when being implemented. So, we have the statute from the CAA. Now, the agencies are writing the how, all of that will go into place. And it's going to take them a few few different rules, a few different rounds of rulemaking to get through all of those, if we say, kind of instructions on how to do what was in the statute. So this was part one. Much of this goes into discussion on what a qualified payment amount is for providers, which may seem like something that's not quite important, but it's going to be an important piece of the puzzle for some of the rulemaking that comes down the line. And then it also goes into great detail about notices. So notices to consumers from their healthcare providers, and also notices between carriers or payers and healthcare providers. So a few different types of notices there and in kind of different segments of the process of making sure everyone is aware of whether they're in a network or out of network, either as a provider or as a consumer. And then finally, there was a lot of discussion or more than I think some people anticipated for exactly what would be considered for post-stabilization care So for someone who may have been admitted to an out-of-network facility or cared for by an out-of-network provider because of an emergency, what the requirements are for them, they were admitted and not able to consent to care, what the process is to get to a point where that person is stabilized and legally can consent to Their care, whether it's to stay out of network facility despite the costs or to be transferred. And we'll go into deeper detail on that.
0: And this is considered an interim final rule. So can you outline the distinction between an interim final rule and a proposed rule?
1: Sure. So typically, when we go through the rulemaking process, and I know this is a little bit not quite civics 101, maybe a few classes higher than that when we're talking about going through administrative law and how these pieces come into place. And as I kind of alluded to in the answering the first question, first you typically have a statute that is passed by Congress, so one type of law, and then the agencies go into greater detail from the the how or the what that was in the statute and the rulemaking really goes into, what needs to be done to be able to fulfill what was in the statute? So the finer rules. Typically, when we go into administrative law rulemaking from the agencies, they release a proposed rule. so kind of a first draft of what they think the the rule should be on how this broader statute is imposed. It goes out for public stakeholder comments. People like us write in and let them know what our thoughts are whether we think the process they released will work. And then that all goes back to the agencies, they read through all of those comments and take those into account and either release a final rule, which sometimes can change from what the proposed rule was after having read all of that feedback during the comment period. Or sometimes they get comments that, What they propose just really won't work. And so they release another proposed rule and tweak it quite a bit and ask for more feedback before releasing a final rule, which then is enacted into law. Here we got an interim final rule. So it's not the traditional route, but it's not that atypical for it to occur. And with this, it was really about timing. So in the CAA, it required certain aspects of the statute to have rules written addressing those pieces by July 1st. And because of the timing, and remember, the CAA was passed just right at the end of December of 2020. So I know it's been six months, but this was a very detailed r- statute. And so the rulemaking is, is very complex. And add on top of that, that we were going through a transition in administrations. So, going from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, many of these agencies that were writing these rules didn't have, many of the agencies that were writing these rules were still awaiting confirmation of leadership for many of the positions that are presidential appointees to lead their agencies and be able to provide the details for that rulemaking. So, six months when it sounds like it could be quite a a long time is actually very short when you take into all of these other things. And then put on top of that, these agencies are also the ones that are having to handle a lot of the workload with the pandemic and some of the pieces that we've seen from the CARES Act to the American Rescue Plan passed earlier this year, all of those things. So that's one reason why this interim final rule is so limited and only addresses a few of those things that I mentioned in the previous question, but also why it's an interim final rule. And that means that it's technically a final rule, but they are still going to take comments in. And in this case, the administration has been calling this an interim final rule with comment or an IFC instead of just an IFR, which is an interim final rule. And it's because in between all of these 400 pages of this part one IFR are, are questions asking specifically for comments on certain things. Normally, an IFR is very straightforward and might solicit a few comments here and there, but there are a lot of sections that ask for specific feedback throughout this IFC, as the administration is calling it. I think that in this case, even though it's being released as an interim final rule, as a way for some of the pieces for stakeholders that, that needed them to be able to move forward with other aspects and planning for Future rulemaking, they can kind of depend on, on what was released, but we also know that they are going to be seriously taking into account comments that they're given because there were those specific questions throughout the IFC. And because they gave us 60 days to respond, if it was something that they probably weren't going to change or weren't really interested in feedback on, it would be probably be a 30-day comment period, but it's 60 days. So that tells us they really want us to spend time with this, to process it, and to give them well-thought feedback on those specific requests.
0: So last month, we discussed the letter we submitted to the agencies with suggestions on how to best implement this balance billing ban. Were those considered in this round of regulation?
1: Dan, I would love to tell you that all of our questions were answered during this first IFR, but unfortunately they weren't. One of the largest pieces that was included, though, in this IFR that we questioned in our letter was about that post-stabilization care. The bulk of our letter, however, really focused on arbitration and the process there, and that was not included in this round of rulemaking. That is going to be in some of these parts that are coming throughout the rest of this summer and the fall. Like I said, this was just part one. We will probably get three or four, maybe even five different rounds of rulemaking. You can imagine how ecstatic I am to go through all of that. But it's going to be one of those later rounds that really gets to the questions that we posed and some of those suggestions that we gave them beforehand on the process of arbitration, who can serve as an arbiter or an arbitrator what that process was going to be like, some of what the outside data points could be considered during arbitration and and those aspects. So much of what we wrote in about is still waiting waiting to be addressed. And it will be. It's not that because it wasn't included in this first round, we're never going to get it. It is anticipated to be in these subsequent rounds of rulemaking.
0: If you are looking for a new way to complete your annual Medicare Advantage training, NAHU should be your first stop. Created by agents, for agents, the NAHU certification program meets all CMS requirements, plus our training program provides free CE and bonus material that will give you new and important information to assist you in helping your clients throughout the year. The Plan Year 2022 course is now available through NAHU's Benefits Specialist Online Learning Institute. So log on to NAHU.org now and register. So, to get into the specifics of this interim final rule, what does this interim final rule say about how patients must be notified of out of network services?
1: with the notification requirements i think the the biggest piece here and we did include a little bit in our letter about this although it wasn't the the larger focus we were concerned that a notice about being cared for by an out of network provider or being at an out of network facility would be a notice that just kind of got buried in everything else that you are given or have to sign when you go to seek care and especially in emergency situations, but even in situations where you are seeking care and you know that the appointment is going to be, and I'll use this as an example, 72 hours in advance, because that's one of the notice requirements. If someone is making arrangements for treatment or care in advance and the healthcare provider is able to provide notice that far in advance, they are required to. And so that takes into account um, scheduled treatment when someone on the team is going to be an an out-of-network provider, or maybe it's an in-network provider, but you're going to an out-of-network facility for that care. So that all has to be disclosed. And it also has to be disclosed along with an estimate of exactly what that cost would be. And they kind of battled around with exactly what would constitute that average and recognized that accurate amount, you know, down to the dollar might not be able to be provided, but asked a good faith effort there for that to be released. And the big piece here is that this is all separate from all of those different documents that you get when you're going to the doctor. So that's the big takeaway here is that it will be something that's separate, that creates your own attention To go there so that it's not something that's buried and you're just signing it the way that you sign so many things when you check in at a healthcare provider so that the consumer truly is aware and it's not something that's in boilerplate language and, you know, six-point font at the bottom of a page.
0: One other area we were concerned with was post-stabilization services. How does this rule seek to regulate this area?
1: So as I mentioned earlier, we were very concerned with post-stabilization services, how and what happens to someone in in that specific circumstance when they may have been provided care, when they weren't able to consent to it just because of the type of emergency that they're in. At what point are they they deemed stabilized? Um, Can they transfer for care? What happens if they were admitted somewhere? and transportation to an in-network facility isn't safe or reasonable because of the distance or whatever the circumstances could be, what happens if they are still not able to give consent, but there's someone who has power of attorney? Are they able to consent to a transfer of care or to continue care, but consent to out-of-network billing? Which, you know, if you're having someone else that's consenting to it and, and you're not able to yourself, even if they have power of attorney, that's still just a lot. Some people were very concerned about it. So they did release some pieces that need to be considered if someone is deemed to be stabilized. First, the attending emergency physician or the the treating provider must determine that they are able to travel using non-medical transportation or non-emergency medical transportation to an available participating provider or facility. So here, it kind of takes that concern away about having to take what could be a very costly ambulance or other type of medical transportation to another facility. So they have to be able to go in a non-medical transportation. The provider also, once it's deemed that the patient or consumer is quote-unquote stabilized, they do have to meet the notice and consent criteria. So if they aren't able to provide that notice that we talked about prior, or that person is quote-unquote stabilized, but not able to give consent, That is also something that's taken into consideration as to whether they are going to be protected from surprise billing during that post-stabilization care. Another condition is the individual or their authorized representative must be in a condition to receive the information in the notice and to provide informed consent. So we kind of already talked about that with the prior piece. And this is to be determined by the attending physician, which a lot of these aspects are, which Kind of, there are some that feel like that might be giving too much power to the physician, to the attending physician to determine these aspects. But with these different requirements and qualifications, it's more than we had before and gears up some really muddy areas that were provided in the statute. So this is better than, than what we had. And I think we'll still see some fine tuning in the end. And then finally, the consent must be made voluntarily. And they give the example that this means the individual must be able to consent freely without undue influence, fraud, or duress. So if post-stabilization services are provided quickly after the emergency services are provided, it may be challenging for that patient to have enough time to make a clear decision regarding consent. So that's something that the caution that needs to be taken into consideration and also consent that's obtained through a threat of restraint or immediacy of the need for treatment is not considered voluntary. So if they say, you know, you need to consent to this or else you're not going to be able to get treatment or um, you need to consent to this or, you know, something else is going to happen, that is not considered voluntary consent a lot of things to kind of think about, but also, I think, are, are there to protect the consumer.
0: Finally, the interim final rule also regulates, as we mentioned, how qualified payment amounts are calculated. So what does the rule say in this area?
1: This is one of the aspects that's a little bit in the weeds compared to some of the other things that we talk about when it comes to what we're expecting with the surprise billing regulations. But the qualified payment amount, giving a simple kind of definition, is it's the lesser of the bill charge or the plan or issuer's median contracted rate. The way that they calculated this and the data points that they took into consideration, the bill charges of who, the providers of what, what are we using here? Well, the big piece that was discussed by a lot of stakeholders was what geographic area are you taking when you look at these? And they used smaller geographical areas. And then if you are in a rural area and you're using a radius and I'm using, this is very simple examples, not exactly what they're doing, but just simple examples to explain the point here. If you end up in a rural area and you're doing like a 10 mile radius and you're trying to see what the the build charges are for a specific type of provider, and you only have like three providers and and you feel like that's not a good enough data sample, then it allows the geographic area to grow out from that example of of 10 miles. And then again, beyond that, if you still aren't finding enough data to be able to be compiled, um, to, to plug into that. Why this is important is it is believed that doing this based on those smaller geographic areas and then building out if the data sample isn't enough, that this will allow for the qualified payment amount, the QPA, to start at a lower base. So the reason why that is important is because the QPA later is going to come into account for what an arbiter or arbitrator will be able to look at when determining the final amount that they deem appropriate for out-of-network care if it goes to arbitration. This also is the closest, we think, to getting that benchmark rate that we asked for to be included as an amount that the arbiter or arbitrator is able to use when negotiating all of this and also is likely to encourage providers that are out of network to use these numbers as they're out of network billing or something close to these numbers to prevent them going to arbitration and possibly getting less Than what they could have asked for if they weren't, you know, if they were charging well above this rate, they're likely to come down closer to the QPA so that they aren't challenged and go to arbitration and, like I said, could end up getting even less than than what's there. So that's why this this is important, the way that they defined it and the way that they looked at it on these geographic areas. Again, you're going to hear us talk about it a lot more once we get these other rules. But this was kind of um, an important baseline for us to have defined and to kind of set the rules of the game before we get these next set of guidance.
0: As we've mentioned a few times now, there will be upcoming rules dealing with other portions of the surprise billing ban. So what areas do the agencies still need
1: to cover? I haven't said it enough. I'll say it again, arbitration. This is the biggie. And now they are probably wishing that Congress went with that median and network rate, uh, like we asked for instead of arbitration, because they're realizing how hard these rules are to put together. But this was the statute that the agencies were given, and they're going to have to comply with that and write the rules. So that's really the biggest aspect when it comes to the surprise billing. And then if we look at the No Surprises Act kind of in its totality, and I'm not even talking about the CAA in its totality, just the No Surprises Act portion. There is also that section on broker disclosure that we're waiting for, but it is separate from the surprise billing aspect, but it is still in that piece of the statute that we are still waiting for rules on.
0: It is now time for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. What are we toasting to this week?
1: This week, we're toasting to two million new enrollments during the special enrollment period that started February 15th. As a reminder, there's only 30 days left during the special enrollment period. CMS is calling it the Summer Sprint to Coverage. So if you have clients that are able to enroll in the healthcare exchange during this time, we encourage you to help them submit their plans. Out of the 2 million new lives enrolled, a majority of them have been enrolled through health insurance agents and brokers. And three-fourths of the people that have gone in and updated their plans in order to receive the new increase in subsidies have done so using an agent or broker. So here's to you for getting more lives covered. Cheers. Cheers!
0: Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts, or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.